think we are. It's happening. It's on. It, it is. Okay. Here we are. Welcome to What Else? Thanks, Brian Nick. Black. Thanks for coming, man. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you doing this. Um, so we were just talking before we started about uh, your boys are at summer camp mm-hmm. in northern Wisconsin. Um, we can go any direction from there, but let's talk about that for a minute because you went as a kid, and it seems like sort of a formative thing in terms of relationships and and stuff. When yeah. did you start going? I started going at eight, and I went for six years, and I stopped before becoming a counselor. But my uncle was the original North Star camper in our family, and his son, my first cousin Danny, went with my brother, and then I went, and um, now my boys are going. So, And I've made a handful of you know very impactful, lasting friendships you know, stemming from camp. Yeah. Uh, including a close mutual friend of ours and yeah. fellow uh, podcast, what else podcast uh, guest, That's Mike right. Simons. Yeah. That's right. And what age were you when you went? So I guess I would have been, you know, from eight on. And like a lot of kids, I think you, sports or whatever passion hobby gets in the way eventually. For me, it was wrestling. So I started okay. doing. You know, wrestling camps, these intensive, awful, torturous <laughs> summer camps focused only on wrestling. And, you know, which, you know, you got to look back and I get you can't second guess, obviously, or redo it. But was it really worth it, you know, focusing so intensely on one thing rather than the joys of the camp experience? And Let's talk about that for a second. Do you think that there's because I wonder sometimes if there's a thing, a value to diving deeply into one thing, no matter what that one thing is, um, the the exercise or the practice of sticking with something and going all the way in and really trying to get into it or dedicate yourself to it or master it or, or the, the fact, just the fact of, of a commitment like that, if you have a sense of... Yeah, I... I, I mean, everything's a trade-off, right? Totally. I don't... I remember my parents, um, they never guided me in one direction or another as far as extracurriculars or sports or even what colleges to consider. They sort of left it all open to me. And so, but they did, I do remember them wondering whether I was really enjoying this intense focus on wrestling and this year round focus at the exclusion of so many other activities. And I don't know why I was just sort of wired that way to want to put all my efforts into this one thing now thankfully i happened to for a while anyway just love that one thing so it wasn't doing it to impress anybody else necessarily although of course that's a factor right (laughs) in everything you do when you're when you're a teen um but yeah wrestling was a huge part of my life for many years and you know there's um, I do, you know, I look back now wishing that I had tr- just done a little bit of tennis, a little bit of golf, something that you can carry on deep into your middle age and beyond, which wrestling really d- <laughs> doesn't fit the bill. So Not conducive to, yeah. yeah. So I'm now actually backtracking and figuring that stuff out now, like trying yeah. to swing a tennis racket. And, but you did, you said you did love it at the time or for a yeah, time, right? Well, so I started in seventh grade and um, I, I basically tried out for the basketball team and didn't make it. And then this this cool kid from the high school came 
you know, with flyers through the junior high saying, hey, we're, we're starting this wrestling program for, for this little giants program. So eventually when you come to high school as a real giant, you can have some background in wrestling. And I signed up and fell in love with it and, and became obsessed with it and would um, sort of, we put a, a wrestling mat in my basement. I would have friends over after practice to wrestle even more. And it wasn't a particularly popular sport either. So there was just a, a genuine thrill of enjoying it and getting better at it. But then, you know, I wound up getting injured a few different times, and um, somehow that made me, like, more obsessed and competitive with, like, regaining lost ground and proving to other people and myself that, you know, I could I could do better, I could be better. So I kept on uh, that cycle of sort of not quite hitting my goals or getting hurt and then, like, redoubling my efforts to come back the next year and that went all the way through college you know and, um, and then when I was done with wrestling I kind of collapsed into this like pit of despair a little bit and I gained a ton of weight and I was really out of shape I didn't even want to exercise at all it was rough um, took a while to kind of rebalance myself and yeah. you know remember that you can just exercise for fun and you, it doesn't have to be this sort of life or death scenario <laughs> Did you you stop just because? Did you wrestle through co- like competitively in college? I then? wrestled in college. Okay. Yeah, you know, I was um, like every you know, college wrestler or sort of Division One college wrestler. You know, you're you're amazing in high school, and then you're just another guy. You know, so I was used to being a standout, and then was anything but a standout. I was just on the team. I was sometimes I was in the roster or a starter, sometimes not. I won about as many matches as I lost. I was just sort of like, I was scratching and clawing my way through a mediocre college career. But it, but yeah, I was, it was, took about as much time of my college life as it had in junior high school and high school. And then it all ends, right? Because right. there's no such thing as a professional wrestler. Um, uh, you know, if you're talking about the real sport of amateur wrestling nowadays, actually, there's a there is a conduit. Um, there's people on both sides of whether this is a good thing or not, but yeah. which is this MMA phenomena. So college wrestlers right. who want to keep going sort of transition into this mixed okay. martial arts world. Um, yeah, but you did some of that stuff, right? A little barely. Bit. I remember you like telling me we were at some after a Hayward gig, and you're like, you had to go drive to Ohio the next day and fight somebody or something. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I dabbled, but not even as a real amateur, because that's that stuff is scary to me. I mean, I, I like to box, and I've done a little bit of jujitsu and other stuff, but um, to put it all together with you know in a cage with five ounce gloves and no headgear you know where elbows and knees to the face are legal that's sort of completely above and beyond what i'm so, yeah, interested there's limits in. too. there's limits yeah yeah can you talk a little about your i'm interested in to the extent that you can recall your sort of state of mind or your feeling about it um that aspect of it the uh the sort of like physical confrontation aspect of the thing was that like an appealing thing to you like or what i guess that's one question then the other one is kind of like if that wasn't like what was do you think the appeal particularly of of wrestling if you can identify yeah it was the the violence of it was a big part of why i liked it um it's actually not the case anymore when i do boxing and some grappling now it's 
my my mind I'm in a different mindset. It's much more of a sport, and I'm thinking about technique, and I'm I'm barely even. I'm, I'm more concerned with doing well as opposed to winning. But back then, I was kind of an angry kid, um, and you know, I got in my fa- fair share of fights, and um, and so the violence aspect of wrestling and and sort of uh, was a big piece of the appeal. Mm-hmm. And then as you get deeper into the sport, um, you know, the key, it becomes so competitive that worrying about trying to hurt somebody, it's, it's ancillary or distracting. It's like you, you're just trying to score points and, and eke out a win. Mm-hmm. And there's, you can't even allow the sort of, the, um, you know, the, the domination piece of it to be a factor because it's, it's like a chess match. You have to mm-hmm. be you know, completely invested in every every piece of the every move every aspect of it um yeah i don't know why i was a kind of angry maybe i was a younger brother my brother used to beat on me quite a bit and uh actually i had some like depression and anxiety issues as a kid on and off um you know sort of flare up and i'd i'd get treatment and i'd be sort of you know a mess for a while and then i'd improve um and i don't know whether wrestling helped or hurt or what but it um it definitely focused me and um, yeah, but it, I, I like the the violence piece of it for sure, which a lot of wrestlers don't you know don't admit or right. I find don't it's not as much of an appeal to most of them. Do you think that it either is an effect or just in parallel with that, like your orientation towards whether it's obviously in that case physical conflict or confrontation, but just conflict in general. Whereas I think some people, their adrenaline really, like, spikes and, and it's it's very stressful for them. Like, do you find that it helped you at all to manage other kinds of stressful situations? I don't think so. No. I, I, I really, um, I didn't figure out how to manage my stress effectively until much later in life. And if anything, wrestling, one of the reasons I wonder if wrestling was ultimately a good choice for me is that... I was so anxious about wrestling um, and the lead up to it, making weight, you know, sort of sussing out my competition. And I had a very, a generally pretty negative mindset about it. So I was always, my dad used to tease me, like, I was always ready to lose and preparing myself for the crushing embarrassment of losing. So I had the exact opposite mindset that all the sports psychologists will now teach you to have. And back then, there really there was no such thing as sports psychology, or at least it didn't creep into you know Highland Park, Illinois high school wrestling room. And so, I mean, I, I was able to succeed in spite of that generally, but I, I was always just prepared to lose and then mildly pleased that it generally didn't happen, that I won more often than not. But I was anxious before. I was sort of half-heartedly relieved afterward. It was just, you know, um, it didn't really seem to help me managing, yeah, manage the the angst um, as much. Music, I think, was a better tool, um, and I didn't really become interested as much in music until much later. Yeah, so talk about maybe a little how you got interested in music and how you ended up starting to play and stuff. So I played uh, I played violin growing up, not not particularly well or with a, a lot of like organic interest. It was sort of you know you sign up for an instrument, but I was a competitive kid, and you know Suzuki method of instruction was 
good for me because it was competitive and they were constantly giving you little rib- ribbons and mm-hmm. and awards whether you were you know good or not and I kind of it, I fell into that structure nicely where I was I was uh, competitive with myself but um, finding music as a means of express, expression uh, or something that I was interested in happened in high school I I got into um, like early pre-war blues and like acoustic blues and and then into like the more uh, electrified kind of muddy water stuff and and decided I wanted to play harmonica so I taught myself rudimentary you know second position blues harmonica and um and then in high in college I found on my first day of college I, <clears throat> my one of my roommates was this brilliant like finger picking um guitarist who also loved you know Sonny Terry and Lightning Hopkins and Sun House and so we the two of us were a little duo and I would I would play the harmonica parts and sing a little bit, and he would play the guitar parts and sing most of the time. And th- you know that was amazing. And um, and this guy who I'm still friends with, he um, kind of showed me. Um, he opened up a lot of interesting musical avenues for me, and and then I put away music for a while and came back to it in uh, in grad school when a friend had this old banjo who she wasn't using and gave to me effectively and i you know hacked my way through that and i'm still hacking my way through it so did you take lessons playing banjo or uh, eventually not harmonica okay. um probably should have but um and then in the banjo yes i found this great teacher i think if you meet any chicago based banjo player they've all either had lessons with or played in a band with this guy gus freelander and uh gus taught me the basics and i think i'm still at the basics effectively but i i enjoy it and we you know back to mike simons who we mentioned early on he i'm in this band with mike and others and it's just a joy it's like great people having a lot of fun together you've played with us a whole bunch and um yeah it's it's amazing yeah that's really good was that experience at college playing with your roommate was that the first time you had played in like a small group format? Like, so I'm assuming you played in the school orchestra or something when you were taking violin. Yeah, I um, right. It was the first time I played in any kind of band of my making or that I was any meaningful part of. That's right. And there was a guy who, um, you know, within the blues world, he was he became he had a real big career. His name was Corey Harris, and he lived. I went to University of Virginia, and he lived in Charlottesville and played basically um, on the street corners. And then he'd have gigs at night, but he was, even then, like so clearly this incredible talent. Um, and so he let me kind of sit in with him, and I played at a few of his gigs. And so I had an early, or in college, I had a taste of of um, what it meant to get up on stage. And, yeah. yeah. That's cool. It was cool. Did you... It sounds like you were into just playing the instruments for their own sake and stuff like that. What was was there some other level to it when you played in front of an audience, or was it just kind of what you do when you play with a group? Yeah, I think more or less it was sort of just converting what you had been we worked out privately into a slightly different format. Yeah. Um, 
you know, my wife teases me when she comes and sees us play, like, doesn't always look like I'm having such a great time because it, and it's true because I, you know, I'm not good enough at my craft to completely be in the moment or to, to interact much with the audience or to comport my facial features or like move my body in a way that like most people who are professionals would do. I'm just kind of barely keeping it together with my two hands on the strings, uh, you know, keep it, keeping, keeping the song going. Um, so you're, so during college was kind of your first experience playing in front of, playing in front of an audience. Mm Mm-hmm. And tiny audiences, yeah. I mean, so I was the sidekick of this guy, Corey Harris, maybe a dozen or so times. But then my friend Andy and I played played around at, you know, various tiny gigs. Um, uh, but it was great. It was like, it, it, you know, wrestling and school and schoolwork took up, you know, 100% of my time. And I just squeeze in little windows of music, but it was so therapeutic. And even then I, you know, recognized that it was like a, a compliment to you know, what wrestling was doing to sort of amp me up and raise my anxiety level. Music was having the opposite effect. Interesting. So you had like an awareness of that at that time. I think so. Yeah. Or maybe I'm curve fitting now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When you were talking about when you were a kid, when you were a little kid, um, so you... If you're not comfortable talking about it, it's fine. But when you talked about kind of like having some treatment stuff for anxiety and depression, like it's interesting to me the that like did, did you become aware of this? Did your parents become aware of it? Like, did you have a sense of yourself? Like, boy, I feel out of sorts. Or yeah. So the first um, so when I was four years old, and I don't remember this myself. This is all you know secondhand through my parents, although there's photos i was um i was just a very unhappy kid and um and at that point i think you're too young and also the era wasn't such that they would label you anything they just oh brian you know brian's um um antisocial or whatever it was but i would face the other way in family pictures and i was just um i was just uh, upset all the time and then apparently when i turned five I kind of turned the corner, I was off and running, and, and I didn't um, have another sort of period until it was appropriate to sort of seek help when you act that way. So I think I was in sixth grade when I fell into this like deep funk, and I was you know crying all the time and kind of inconsolable, and I had, I'd had these three long hour conversations with my dad, sort of talking myself in circles, and he recognized that this was out of his depth as great as it was to like you know really get get into it with me sure. and i do remember those conversations now as a, a great means to get closer to my my dad but he i went to a psychologist the first one i went to i fell asleep like completely out cold <laughs> asleep and i came back and told my parents about it but i was so embarrassed that that you know my life or my problems were so boring that the, this guy fell asleep that I didn't tell them so I kept going back to this guy who regularly fell asleep and when I finally uh, told my dad that he was you know outraged and had so I, anyway I, I, I figured out a way to um, kind of pull myself out of that first depression in sixth grade again it just sort of like whether it was chemical I don't know but it sort of just resolved itself but again it just came back every three or five years so it was like this acute 
experience of like profound either anxiety or like sadness and i in it was debilitating and um uh, yeah so the last time um and I, i'm i'm perfectly comfortable talking about it because it's you know it's it's a good news story ultimately it, um for me in particular and this isn't the case of course universally but this one methodology really helped me and i it's called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy which um has become very popular but for me i use that tool to like break this cycle of negative thinking and i i st- now i kind of do it unconsciously where i don't have to go through steps 1 through 5 you've integrated uh, it uh, yeah into- it just sort of naturally um now it doesn't cure um anything but it, it is a great tool in your toolkit to tamp down some of these like n- cycles of negative thinking mm-hmm. it's interesting so when you when you were like 6th grade or whatever did the was it kind of that it was like a storm that came and then it just went away and you're like oh i guess it's gone now or were you at that point were you like doing something that you were aware of that got you out of it i don't know what changed i really don't i mean there were triggers in 6th grade and other times and what well, the next major one was senior year in high school there were like environmental triggers you know in 6th grade suddenly you went from having this great group of largely guy friends who were into sports and into whatever we were into like skateboarding and break dancing and all kinds of fads and then in 6th grade everything changed and suddenly it was all about girls right. and i was not ready for that and i was kind of thru- you know thrust into the middle of it or or put myself in the middle of it and um it was so competitive and scary and um you know like two girls would or a girl would call you on the phone when people still talked on phones and um you'd be on the phone with her and she'd be asking you these probing questions and then you'd hear a whole bunch of other girls giggling in the background and then you'd find out that three other girls were on the phone and they just exposed some weakness about you and then then you know it was that kind of setup and it so it was a toxic mix for me cuz i was naturally i think predisposed to being like anxious and sure. uh, so and and whether i grew up or they grew up or we all grew up i mean something maybe it was environmental that changed and we matured a bit and i you know felt better yeah that's bad just just hearing about that um not fun no that doesn't sound like it at all um Although other of my friends were in this had the same you know uh were in the same situations and either laughed it off or had a thicker skin or thicker a right. better ability to weather that kind of stuff I would just live with it and stew on it for you know yeah weeks yeah sure and then how old were you when you feel like you kind of got the tools to to help work through stuff You know, really not until after business school. I mean, I, I you know, I could think of long periods of, you know, 4-6 years where I felt great and didn't and didn't need to worry about any of this. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until my late 20s that I seemed to have, you know, knock on wood, like kind of licked it for good with the cognitive behavioral therapy and whatever other you know i have been in a wonderful marriage and uh have you know i'm lucky in a lot of respects to not have the environmental um 
stresses to sort of trigger some of these things. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a long road, you know. Yeah. I mean, to me, it was a combination of the cognitive therapy, but also um, just deciding I didn't give as much of a shit about what you know, the, I, I was I assumed that everyone was focusing on me and 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 scorekeeping and and measuring and ranking. Whether it was like a, everybody had a file on you, everyone had a file, and it was yeah. constantly being updated. And and whether it was the wrestling scoreboard or the grades or the um, you know later when I was like a money manager or a, a junior version of one, like daily performance. Of course, no one knew or cared, but to me, I somehow felt like all eyes were on me. And once I was able to. Just realize that no one gives a shit um uh other than friends who are generally rooting for me but still of course day-to-day don't give a shit that that releasing all that was a a big piece of it too did that part that releasing of that and that change of perspective about where the spotlight was or wasn't was that something that a change of perspective that just happened evolved with age or whatever or were you doing something to try to like rework that to realize like hey I need to start to reprogram myself such that I don't think everybody's keeping score yeah I think it was uh, I mean I, therapy beyond the cognitive toolkit piece just talk therapy you know if that's what's on your mind constantly um, wondering what these measures and monitors and ratings are like the, a good therapist is going to somehow give you the tools to recognize that and let some of that go so some of it was just therapy and i some of it was i think just settling into a um settling into a my own skin and realizing i'm kind of good enough to Mm -hmm. that i don't need to constantly beat the shit out of myself for shortcomings so right yeah yeah um so you have one older brother one older brother four years older yeah okay yeah. And where did, did you guys always, did you, were you in the Highland Park your whole childhood? Yeah, Deerfield Highland Park. Uh, my parents still live in the same house. I guess I moved when I was four, but effectively the same house we've always lived in, yeah. um, in the subdivision in Deerfield. And um, I went away to school in, at Virginia, came back for my first job out of school as a little investment banking analyst, which was more of a thing then than now. but mm-hmm. And then I went to Durham, North Carolina. I worked for uh, Duke University's endowment for two years, basically following a, girlf- a long-term girlfriend at the time who was going to start a PhD program at Duke in art history. And we had been together, and she had moved to Chicago for me, so now it was my turn to move for her, and, um, and needed the best sort of financy job in Durham, North Carolina I could find. Uh, well, I mean, I, of course, I could have shifted careers, but at the time I had decided I was a junior financed uh, worker bee and wound up finding a great job there. Um, and then that relationship ended in in um, spectacularly dramatic fashion uh, and sort of fled North Carolina with my tail between my legs and came back here to go to Kellogg for two years and um, and then for the almost 20 years now I graduated from Kellogg in uh, 2001 but going back to my summer internship between my two years I've been at the same job now for going on 20 years which is exceedingly boring if I think about all my classmates who have had these 
interesting trajectories and they've career hopped or they move vertically and laterally and are doing amazing things. You know, I'm in the same seat I've been for 20 years. Uh, so the career has been remarkably stable. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so what was this something that you like, do you think it was more of a thing that you really were like, I'm determined to make a career in this field? Or was it a little bit like it found you? It was inertia, yeah. yeah. I mean, I when I chose my major in undergrad, again, it's back to the, like, wh- what do people expect of me? And so, right. you know, if I'm this upwardly mobile, um, you know, somewhat math and science-oriented guy, I should probably, if I should probably, and didn't feel like being a doctor, I should go to business school or the undergraduate business major. And that's what I did. And then, of course, the job that you're supposed to seek if you've had that major is in finance, right? And if you want to do finance, you should probably do investment banking. And if you, so I was just, um, without believing that this was a career that actually fundamentally interested me or having some passion for it. Like, I, w- mm-hmm. I wasn't a kid who had a stock account. Or I wasn't like an Alex B. Keaton. You know? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't reading the journal. Um I think I had some some curiosity about business, but it wasn't a passion of mine, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just sort of went along that path. Um, now, once I got to business school, I did start to think, like, within this wide realm of quote-unquote business, what might I be good at or what, you know, um, what might be lucrative. And so, yeah, I, I sort of narrowed. I, I didn't want to be a banker anymore. I didn't want to be you know, uh, what's referred to as like a person on the sell side. I want to be on the buy side, meaning I want to make investment decisions. Um, And so at Kellogg, Kellogg's actually really geared towards people focused on marketing. That's sort of its sweet spot is like if you want to be a brand manager at Kellogg, if you want to run run a business from like a marketing or organizational behavior standpoint, that's where you go. Um, I went there largely because I needed to get out of Durham, North Carolina, and thought business school was a good way to like push, push a reset button mm-hmm. for two years. So there weren't a lot of people at Kellogg interested in working on the buy side. It was okay. a pretty small... Now, had I kind of figured that out ahead of time, I probably would have gone to Booth if I wanted to be back in Chicago. Um, so there was a really small group of us trying to get jobs at like the Fidelities of the world or hedge funds or other places where you or private equity firms. And one of those others was this woman I got to be friendly with, and she said, oh, you should meet my husband. He just went to go work for this very successful family, uh, this family office, and he wants to go you know, build a business within that firm and wants somebody else to help look after the rest of it. So I went and interviewed and with this family and this guy, and here I am 20 years later. So can you, for my edification, other people who are listening, who don't know a, a family office? I mean, that's a term, mm-hmm. right? That has a meaning. Can you kind of talk about like what that is as, sure. a, as a business? Yeah. So effectively, if um, if an individual has created enormous wealth, the, that person has a lot of options about how to have that wealth managed, and most people elect to hand it over to one. Uh, one or several firms that are set up to manage wealth, whether it's, you know, a uh, hundred million or, or three billion, and um, others decide that they want to take control of those investment decisions in house. And if they, uh, if the individual who made all this money didn't make it by making 
investment decisions. They've made it by, you know, starting a widget making company or, or investing early on in Facebook or any number of other things. Then they want to build a team to do that for them. And that's what a family office is. It's a in-house firm to work just for one family to help compound their wealth. Yeah. Okay. And there's, you know, there's a couple dozen here and there's a couple hundred in New York and there's a, you know, it's sort of a, it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, and so the kind of work that you're doing in that environment is basically, so let's say, just for the fun of it, just because it's fun to say, let's say I, I have a uh, billion dollars. Congratulations. Thank you. appreciate that. Good job. Um, yeah. If, if I have a billion dollars, I'm basically, I want to find some, I want to say to somebody, and I made it because I invented something great or whatever, not because I know how to manage turn money into more money. Yep. Right. I basically, I want, I assume I want to find somebody to say, Hey, can you help me to not lose this money or to make money off it and do things with it and not have to pay too much tax? Exactly. Okay. And then you, you know, typically what happens is let's say you're, you're in your sixties or something. Your son has a smart friend who you hire as your, you know, just to basically look after everything and organize everything. And then you decide, well, that's not quite enough. I want somebody to actually make investment decisions. So you, you make another hire. And then next thing you know, 10 years later, you've got a whole team working just for you. Um, and by the way, this isn't to suggest that it's always a smart, uh, decision to bring all this stuff in house and build your own firm. There's often a vanity project or you know a vanity aspect to it too. Like um, it's more fun to have you know walk in the office and there's a whole team of people working just for you uh, yeah, right. um, than having to go visit somebody else's office and yeah, be another client. Be a client. So yeah. So the idea is it you need to do a better job of compounding that wealth after taxes than the other alternatives that this family could have chosen back then and could still choose tomorrow. Right. By the way, this, what I just did here was like the equivalent of like changing the tires and the, or you just like change a guitar string, uh, mid solo. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Seamless. Um, so did you, okay. I'm interested in the mix of stuff just generally and not not necessarily the specifics, but like how much you feel like you knew before you started in this area versus how much you kind of were like, okay, I'm learning along the way and stuff like that. Like when you went into it, did you know what to do? I knew what to do only in a very narrow silo or subset of what I'm supposed to be investing in. So the job working at Duke University um, involved focusing on hedge funds. And I was only a two-year job, so it didn't make me a, the world's leading expert in anything, including hedge funds. But I had at least um, some training under my belt focusing in that area. But that's you know just a portion of what any family or any portfolio would include. So I did have to figure out the rest. Now, one thing about hedge funds, which is a broad sort of expansive term, which we probably shouldn't get into, but because um, it's super boring for most people. But um, it, it, it's sort of like if you can figure out hedge funds, it, you wind up having to learn about a lot of the other more basic 
building blocks of any portfolio, including just simple long-only stock and all the rest of it. So I, I had enough of an awareness of the rest of it that I, I think I can sort of figure it out on the fly. What do you think that – so in your – in your business, what would you like if someone was going to ask you uh, that question? Like, kind of drives me nuts, right? But the what do you do, right? What do you do for a living? Would you say you're like, uh, uh, how would you answer that? I mean, question? what's the the term? The ter- yeah, not just the term that would like be most like relevant about what you. Yeah. So do. if I was talking, if I was at a cocktail party with a bunch of. Um, you know, business types who may not be narrowly in my world, but who probably are conversant in the terminology, I would say I'm the chief investment officer of a single family office. And for some subset of people, that that means something. Yeah. yeah, they know what that entails. Yeah, um, that's right. So you're making you're making the investment decisions. I'm on stuff. the investment side as opposed to like our CFO or our general counsel. Um, yeah, but you know, someone in my seat. The next level sort of bifurcation would be, well, do you focus on, you know, doing like direct deals in private companies? Are you effectively like a private equity business builder or are you more like allocating to funds? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do a little of both, but more of the allocating to funds, which, by the way, is the kind of lower prestige. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Everyone wants to be on the, the front deal lines, guy, right. deal guy, you know, and and. and that's less my role than uh, than the allocator guy. What do you think? So whatever your mix of those things is and all of your kind of responsibilities in, in the work setting, what do you think for you are the, are the sort of valuable attributes or skills to have to do that kind of stuff? Like is it to be really good at analysis or to be like literally good at math so you can crunch the numbers and see the patterns or is it some kind of like negotiating or influence like what what do you think the things are that that help in that kind of role yeah for for the way i approach it it is like building and maintaining a good network of people i trust to share ideas with and collaborate with so if i have at any one time you know, six or eight people who I am very tight with. I don't pay them. They don't pay me. We are just doing similar jobs. And and if I happen to have a um, an expertise in this little subset within the hedge fund industry, let's say, uh, like biotechnology, there's a lot of people making smart bets for and against biotechnology stocks, which are a very volatile sector and it's a very productive area to generate good returns. I've focused there for a little while and I tend to know all the players. And if I decide that these three are good good investments, these three hedge funds, um, the other people in my network, they know me well enough to say that I'm probably going to want to do that too. If there's room in those funds and if Brian's putting the family he works for, their their money in it, and maybe even his own, they'll piggyback on that idea. And likewise, they have their expertise in, in one or two or three areas where I'll trust their judgment. Now, you have to do your own work. It may not be a fit for our portfolio, which is different than theirs. But if you've got an array of people like that, that's more valuable than anything else. And so cultivating those relationships um, and maintaining them um, and they change over time. People come and go, but that's 
the most valuable asset that I have. It's less the analytical horsepower or, or math or, you know, um, negotiation is a, 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 uh, occasionally important and useful, but more so for the deal guys, the, the tough guy, cool guy deal, deal right. side of things, which I spend less time on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's number one, it's the network, and number two is just uh, personal judgments of people's character um, and of their skill set. So I sit across the table from somebody who, you know, in one day I might meet three funds all doing similar things, and they all went to Harvard Business School, and they all, you know, have interesting backgrounds, and they're super smart and driven. And they all present well. And so being able to ask questions that tease out what separates them is what has taken me a, a long time to okay. figure out. And it's, and I don't, you know, the, it's not the gotcha style of like quizzing someone and making them look dumb for not knowing the answer to, you know, what's the market cap of your 10th largest position. I used to do that, you know, and that kind of worked, but it more made me feel smart than it did give me a good answer as to who's the, the best of the three. Mm -hmm. And so now I have better, more probing questions that tease out an answer to me of which one is the exceptionally rare talent, which is really the bar I'm looking for. I, if you're pretty good, I want to find the guy who's better than you, and then better than in, until I find the one who's an exceptionally rare talent, and if he or she will take my money, then that's, that's how we like to invest. Mm -hmm. And then you're wrong, you know, a quarter of the time <laughs> or so. But if you're right three quarters of the time on that assessment, then you've you've done your job. Have you? Do you think you've learned anything? This in in, in general stuff about from doing that and talking to these people and sort of vetting people and stuff about people, right? Patterns or things you see or things you look. Or, red flags or anything just and I don't mean necessarily in terms of like a, a business interview or mm -hmm. whatever I mean kind of more broadly yeah I'd say one of the things that um, that I've learned about people that is applicable across different investment types that I make or more generally about people is trying to figure out who loves what they do and who loves the fruits of their labor mm -hmm. you know because especially when you're talking about the world of hedge funds um it's not easy to figure that out. So to try to decide that somebody loves opening up an annual report after work and reading the footnotes to figure out if there's some obscure asset or liability that could change their opinion about this investment. Um, now, they know that I want to hear that, too, right? So a lot of people will say, well, I, you know, they'll claim they've been going to the Warren Buffett's meeting in Omaha since they were 11. And, and sometimes that's bullshit or sometimes that's... It's true, but again, they're doing that because they, that's what a hedge fund person is supposed to be obsessed with. Is, but if I can see the passion underneath that and get a sense that somebody really loves the work itself and they're reading that footnote you know, at 8 at night because they're curious and they're, it's a puzzle to them and they're trying to unlock this puzzle. Um, you know, I think it's the same with, with music or any field. Like if, you're, if you're, you just love the, the work. Yeah and not the, the fame or the money or the rest of it. Uh, you're generally going to do better over a longer term. You have more sustainable, longer yeah. careers. Is that the, so is that the thing that you find separates the sort of exceptional people from the really good people when you're, when you're looking? It's, it's a, an important factor, yeah. 
Um, and by the way, I, I, you know, I look inward too and say, um, you know, do I love this work? Am I, am I wired to do this or do something else? You know, so it's, I try to put the lens on myself too. And I, I don't, um, I'm not sure that this is my lifelong passion is, you know, picking hedge funds and, and making investment decisions, right. but I'm decent enough at it and I like it enough that here I am 20 years later. Do you think you have to be, does it have to be your consuming passion? Have to? No. I mean, my, my consuming passion is kind of after work. you like, I love being a dad and I love being a husband. Um, and so I get psyched to be home. And so if, uh, you know, I have good days and bad days at work, just like at home. But if, you know, if this isn't my quote unquote calling, I'm kind of okay with that. And now if I knew what that calling was, yeah. I'd like to think I'd have the balls to then go do that. But I don't, I don't have that thing right. that's nagging at me. Like I have to go write the great American novel or uh, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Go back to architecture school or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. I think that's an interesting do you know people who you think have their, like, calling? Do you have friends who are? I have a handful of friends who, uh, who've run 90 miles an hour at that calling. Um, actually, two of the three of them are kind of Hollywood or, or, like, screenplay writer types. And, you know, hasn't worked out for them yet, um, but they're sort of in ancillary fields and they're adjacent and close enough to it. They still feel somewhat a part of it, but I'm not, you know, I'm sort of a, I think in statistical kind of bell curve terms about a lot of things in life. Um, and I invented none of that. It's like, the, you know, the Freakonomics or the, you know, Sapiens math. And um, I don't believe that pursuing your passion with all of your energy will result in you achieving success in that field. It's just nonsense. It may or may not. It probably won't statistically, you know, statistically. So uh, I'm not shocked that my screenplay writing friends haven't become Steven Spielberg. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's also, I think there's a component of that stuff where, when you're striving for it as a career thing, it can affect actually how you feel about the thing itself, about the work mm-hmm. itself, right? Because you do want, on some level, those are the success is the fruits you were talking about before, as opposed to the work itself. Yep. Um, do you find? Are you like? Uh, I'm asking this because you know the wrestling stuff, and then maybe to an extent music, or, or maybe even to an extent business stuff. Do you? Do you like to dive deep into things? Do you think that's just kind of the way you do it? Like if you're going to do something, you kind of like get deep into it? Or are you also okay with like, I'm just going to sample this thing and I can be casual about this interest or what? You know? Yeah, I used to be uh, all or nothing. and But as an adult, I'm definitely willing to be a tourist or a casual hobbyist, you know, in a lot of things. Um, you know, I... If I were still all or nothing mindset, I'd be way better at the banjo. I would actually take lessons and practice, you know, likewise different sports that I do or, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've eased up on all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to me about at this point. So you're how old now? I'm 46 and change. Uh, you're doing great. Then when, you, when, uh, so, 
at your young age, um, as opposed to my advanced Please, age. yeah. yeah. Um, you look better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you... That's generous. Um, when you talked about... You know, earlier about, hey, you know, you realized at some point that you could just exercise for fun and things like that. Um, can you talk about your kind of orientation toward physical activity and stuff and kind of what you get out of it? And is it something you feel like you have to do to physically feel good or is it something you do for the emotional part or, or a mix? Yeah, I, um, it's a mix. I think for me, I, um, I recognized after I, you know, I finished wrestling in college and I went through this period where I just didn't exercise barely at all and I was working too hard and very unhealthy. And I, I then, of course, sw- uh, I let it swing way back the other way where I became obsessive again and I, um, I worked out too much or I was like too focused on my, my weight. And now I've got this happy sort of middle-aged balance where I, I exercise enough to feel physically good and to i think sleep better and be in a generally better mood um have more energy and just you know feel better about myself and how i look um but i don't i don't obsess over it but i the other thing i tried to strike a balance on is like i i can exercise only so much i need some of that exercise to come in the form of a physical of a sport Mm -hmm. so um for a long time it's been either boxing or kickboxing or something like that where you know would i find a group of guys who roughly at my level meaning they're not we're not trying to hurt each other you know the the worst thing that could happen is that we is that someone gets like knocked down or knocked out god forbid right so like it's a sport we're trying to hit each other but we're trying to do so uh, without causing lasting damage and but unfortunately now you know like joint issues have kind of crept into it and so now i'm shifting away from that and figuring out maybe tennis will be my thing. I don't know. Um, Hedgy plays a ton. My wife plays a ton of tennis and we played this past Sunday and usually, you know, I get around the court and I'm super annoying. Like I kind of dink it over the net, which is frustrating to a player like her who hits it hard. And she, and, and so I can wind up not quite beating her generally, but keeping it close. This Sunday she beat me six Oh, and it was so I had this sort of this moment where I of self-reflection. I'm like, this is not okay. I will not lose six zero. So I'm, I'm deciding to like invest in in, in lessons and just mm-hmm. become a proper tennis player at some level. So yeah. Um, so you heard it here first. If right. My career so takes off. Yeah. When so when you're at this point when you're doing it. Are you enjoying the process of doing it? Because I know some people, right, their relationship to exercise is, this is miserable, but this is what I have to do to look good or to weigh this much or, or because I need to do this for my health, but I hate doing it. I don't, I don't hate it. I don't love it. Like the, uh-huh. the putting, uh, you know, the, the gym part of it, not the sports part I love, right. but the, the two, three days a week where I'm down at the gym, I definitely don't look forward to it and, and relish the, the, you know, the, the feeling of like getting my heart rate up and sweating a ton or, or working, you know, like my muscles, but I don't hate it either. I'm kind of, I'm just, it's a means to an end, but I also try to make it fun. And you listen to a podcast or I have a trainer once a week who keeps it interesting. And, um, yeah, it's hard to do something you hate, even if it, you know, you have to, to, cause it's good for you. Yeah. Right. Yes, for sure. When you, 
if you could if there was a thing that you could just like kind of snap your fingers and be good at just one thing like anything is there something like that you kind of have in the back of your mind that you think about like boy I don't have the time to invest in this or the energy or whatever but it would be sweet to be able to do X hmm yeah, I sort of I, I think about all my little hobbies that I am not that I'm like proficient at and I'd like to upgrade all of them, but I don't know if there's that one thing that I don't yet do. Um, you know, actually, it's one thing that comes to mind. You know, um, like when I walk into a room full of people that I I know a little bit, or we we have all these parties at our house, or my wife's involved in the arts, and we go to these functions all the time and I I still have this like social anxiety and I watch her like just work the room and people are smiling laughing engaged you know and I it's it's a real effort for me you know like I don't when I'm with my friends I have a ball I love to be social I love to be like out but if it's if it's a little bit more of a of a function I I do terribly and I'm in that environment and I don't I mean hopefully I don't always do terribly but I I feel like it's work, and uh, I'd like to. It would improve my quality of life quite a bit if I were just better at it, mm-hmm. and enjoyed it more. And people can tell when you're enjoying it more, and then they enjoy it more. You know, yes. so I could snap my fingers and be a socialite Gatsby type, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> it sounds like you're on the whole being social, being around people, unless it's a subset of familiar people, is takes energy as opposed to energizing you most of the time i mean you know in any room full of people hopefully there's two or three or six that i i know and like and i kind of hide over with them um but yeah i mean i i don't i don't kind of work a room too well um thankfully i'm in a job where like i'm not i don't i'm not in sales it's not part of my job to be good at that because i think i'd be terrible at it so i don't really have to but it's a nice thing to meet you know to to look forward to meeting new people and to you know broaden your network of um acquaintances um i'm lucky to have a a good solid group of friends but beyond beyond that circle it's like i haven't uh thrived yeah uh, you know yet how having that circle of friends like how is um your experience of maintaining those friendships because people get busier, right? People have families and stuff like that. Do you find it to be at all difficult to to kind of keep up with people, or does it, in your particular context, does it kind of just flow pretty well? Yeah, it seems to flow pretty well. Um, you know, I have these different, whether it's the like the band or other friends in different realms where I see them just enough that we stay as tight as we've ever been, even though the frequency isn't always what I'd like it to be. Um, I mean, it's really a function of the time with the kids. Like, if if uh, if the kids were off in college, I think I would crave... I would work harder to, like... <clears throat> excuse me. Yep. Oof. Take your time. Yeah, a little almond incident. Yeah. There. I would, like, cultivate new friendships or you know deep in the ones that I have but you know my kids are a full-time job at this point yeah and 
you say you have a group of friends who are from childhood, from like the summer camp experience and stuff like that. Well, in truth, I mean, um, Mike and John Sherman are the two I'm really close to from that era, and they were much older. They are much older than I am, so I don't have. I have a few acquaintances who are my cabin mate type, you know, peers, but I've lost touch with most of them, and so close friends from a few from growing up, a few from Kellogg, a few from, you know, later in life through through Hedgie, so. Yeah. Talk to me a little about the camp thing. Like, what, what was the, because it sounds like that was kind of like a formative situation. What did you do up there? Was it, like, outdoorsy? Was it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you kind of, like, you're offered up this incredible menu of activities three times a day. So there's like a, two morning sessions and an afternoon. And you sort of, there's a process to like raise your hand and be chosen. So every day is sort of booked with whatever combination of like fishing, sailing, softball, football, basketball, canoeing, archery, riflery, all that stuff. And, um, it's great. So you can, you know, the sporty kids could be athletic and compete in their sports. And then the more kind of outdoorsy kids, you know, it wasn't particularly competitive sports-oriented camp. You can play sports. You can not, you know. And unlike what I was used to growing up in the North Shore, like the the cool kids weren't defined by the best athletes or any other sort of known criteria. It was just more who's funny to be around, like who's a... Who's an enjoyable, silly goofball who attracts attention by, um, you know, through the force of their personality? So, you know, you there's a lot of shtick, you know, like a lot of competitive shtick and banter, and um, and I like that. That was quite different from, you know, the ranking system of who's the best basketball player because basketball was the cool sport in yeah. in junior high. Yeah, are you? Or are you then, or are you now outdoorsy? Yeah. When, um, no. I mean, I, I like being outdoors, but I, I'm not, um, I'm not sort of a, a deep backwoods hiker guy. Um, yeah. Last time I, I pulled out the old camping gear, this is in a couple houses ago, Hedgie and I were not yet married, but we were living together, and I pulled out the old um, gear, and including this old stove, and I was priming the stove and testing it and almost burn the you know the house down lit my arm on fire lit the table on fire so um yeah i'm not super <laughs> when you i mean i'm sure this is affected by having the kids and stuff but when you travel like what kinds of things do you like to do we um well, we were going to Korea once a year, every year, where Hedgie's parents lived, and there's still family there. So that was like a big piece of like our family travel budget because it's a long trip. Um, but we we don't we haven't been going there lately. Her, her dad now lives here with us, which is great. Um, so we do a ski trip every year. I, I'm a snowboarder. The kids are skiers, uh, and Hedgie's a good skier. So we do that, which I love. I mean, it's kind of outdoorsy, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and athletic, it's like everything I like. Um, and then we do one summer trip to a cool 
you know, kind of culturally interesting place. Um, it still has to be quasi kid friendly, but last year we went to Greece because the boys are uh, are really into mythology. So we built a trip around, you know, the Oracle of Delphi and Athens and and other amazing sites. Um, and now I hate to, you know, at some point we should let the little girl decide where we go, but the boys are really into soccer, so we're going to go to Spain this summer. I mean, you know, that's a reason to go to Spain and um, see FC Barcelona play. And um, yeah, it's been, you know, I, I sort of mark my year in part based on these fun upcoming trips. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you good about, are you a planner? Are you a person who plans ahead and is like, I like to know what I'm going to do for, you know, next summer's trip or this winter's thing or no, something? I you know, we, we divide and conquer. Hedgie's a great planner okay. and stitches together these itineraries and um, I kind of show up and, and do the thing. Are you generally speaking like a person who's kind of comfortable winging stuff and... Yeah, I you know I think I, I I used to I've really changed a lot. Like I used to be meticulous and organized, and I used to make notes of my notes and outlines of my outlines. And um, yeah, now I just I think generally, kind of cruising along. I don't know. Perhaps I need to light a light a fire under my ass at some point. A yeah. new. Um, yeah, pretty chill. It seems pretty useful. Um, doesn't sound like you have a lot of spare time. What are some of the other little things that you said that you know that you're sort of comfortable just kind of dabbling in as a hobby and that you don't feel you need to dive all the way into, but you like doing? Yeah, well, we we've gotten politically active or a little more politically active. Um, obviously, in this era of the current Trump era, we yeah. sort of forced to to um, decide what you believe and and put forth more effort and dollars behind that if uh, given how important it all seems so but you know that's something i enjoy i'm not very good at it i keep picking um candidates that don't seem to go anywhere but uh actually well, hedgy she was an early lightfoot supporter so that was that one was on her and and prescient it turns out but um yeah i like that i don't know what i like about it exactly but it's stimulating Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know I have no aspirations to be involved myself, but I like having access and I like being aware and um, I don't aspire to have any real influence, you know, other than throwing a fundraiser and inviting friends who can support a candidate that I might also support. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that's that, I've enjoyed that quite a bit. Um yeah, I mean, I try to read a bit, but I, I'm not very successful at that. I do listen to a lot of music. I kind of, you know, I follow you on Spotify. I sort of use my musically gifted friends who have this encyclopedic knowledge of every last obscure band, and I, and I you know, burrow into your, I root around in your playlists <laughs> and feeds, and I'll look up and an hour or two has gone by, and, you know, there's two or three bands that I've never heard of before that I know. I don't yeah. like. Yeah. yeah. So you have an a, you have an interest in discovering, listening to new stuff. And... Yeah, I do. I uh, I really, again, if I want to be better at my craft, I would actually listen to more bluegrass and some banjo music. I almost never do. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to, you know, contemporary, interesting, 
kind of rocky or folk music. Um, I don't know how, even how to characterize any of it anymore, but I, yeah, I, I sort of root around in um, in genres that I, um, but in like you know, current stuff. Yeah, yeah. Are there? What were the things you talked a little bit about? Some of the pre-war blues people and stuff like that. Was there other stuff that you were that like made an impact on you when you were younger? You're like, wow, yeah. this is something I really resonates with me. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple like seminal bands and albums in different genres. Like, I was really into some of the angrier math rock stuff, like Helmet okay. uh, and the Melvins. Um, so Helmet in particular, I was obsessed with for a while. And then I had this sort of grungy period, you know, Soundgarden, Screaming Trees, um, Mud Honey type stuff, uh, Jane's Addiction, you know, skipping around some. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I was real, and I I still listen to the Melvins, and I still you know I still occasionally throw on a you know a Fudge Tunnel album, <laughs> um, and then um, yeah, I mean. I did the classic rock thing for a while too, for sure. And uh, my cousin Danny was actually an influence on me. Like he tend to obsess over one band at a time, and it would be the Who, and then he would sort of curate for me, or sort of teach me what I, you know, probably should learn to understand about a band like that. And yeah. I'd spend a summer doing that. Um, so, like that kind of thing. Like, what what age were you guys when? When yeah, they, so they're, everything they were doing was four years ahead of me, but I sort of, yeah. like, tagged along, they being my brother and cousin, yeah. by way of, I don't know, uh, detour. So my my mom is an identical twin, okay. and uh, they grew up in Buffalo, New York, and were, like, dressed identically and all the rest. And they went to Cornell and um, basically met and married two guys who were already best friends and roommates in college my dad and my uncle so so the four of them then all moved back to chicago together my dad was the one of the four from chicago i don't know why he he won but moved back to chicago suburbs first chicago then the suburbs and then they each had two kids and lived down the street from each other basically so i'm the same age as my first cousin jill and my older brother adam is the same age as danny so the eight of us were this sort of unit, you know, almost like two moms and two dads and two extra siblings. Um, So Adam and Danny, the older two, you know, they were, you know, I was around them all the time. And so with stuff they were into, I just, you know, I was inherently into too, to a point. Um, Danny had this weird sort of gangster rap period. He went off some some interesting detours. He was also into guns for a while. I didn't follow him down that path, but... Um, but musically, yeah, he, he exposed me to some really cool stuff that. Just like when he was like in high school. Yeah, or, sorry, when yeah. he when he was in yeah like late junior high high school, right? Okay. And I was four years behind him. Yeah, and so you would get immersed mm-hmm. with them. I mean, everyone has their like you look up to these sort of musical sure. guides, whether they're older or just cooler, you know, like this guy who the finger picking acoustic guitar guy from college i mean he was obviously my age we were we were classmates at uva but he was just you know i thought i knew acoustic delta blues and because i had read a handful of books and had you know 30 or 40 cds Mm -hmm. and um he had entire catalogs behind every you know he just sort of knew it at a different level and so um 
you know, there are levels to everything. But like when I met him, I realized, wow, you, you know, you can do more than just claim awareness or expertise. Like you could actually obtain expertise and again, for your own edification, drill down and expose yourself to more and more and more with, of something, you know, I'd, yeah. I'd never, hadn't seen that before within sort of music. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Were you a person who, like, I mean, it sounds like it was from what you were saying about um, listening to Helmet and things like that, like, where you felt, like, the emotional identification with the music, like, this is my thing, this speaks to me, and this is sort of on some level saying what I, it's articulating what I feel. Totally, although it wasn't lyrics. Like, I still, I don't really get into lyrics that much. Okay. It, was, it was definitely the... The changes within the music, you know, whatever, or the time signature, whatever it was about, like, Hellman in particular, it's sort of a different kind of animal with the weird time signatures. And mm-hmm. it just, yeah, it spoke to me the way those songs were put together, put me in a particular mood or, like, you know, tickle this one nerve. Yeah. And and Delta, Delta Blues did that, too, for a while. It doesn't really anymore, sadly. Um, but, yeah, at, at, at any one point in time, it was definitely the emotional connection to the way the song sounded not so much that the lyrics had any right. meaning to me um but just how the thing how, made yeah. you feel yeah or like even now like i'll listen i'll be rooting around in someone's playlist and i'll you know this is years ago but you know um what's the band um um uh, phosphorescent is one band i listen for and and there'll be a change in a song you know like a uh, there'll be a bridge or something that is so glorious that i'll like listen to it you know 11 times and i don't know enough about music to you would be able to you would say you or david singer one of those guys would say oh it's because they're you know they're shifting to the five a measure earlier or you know i don't know what they're doing but i know it's cool and and i still love that sense of discovery where you find something within a song and you realize that's why you like it and you you know hone in on it yeah that's that's the best, right? Yeah. It's finding that thing, and it's like, it's like the light went on, right? Yep. And you wish you had written written that or figured mm-hmm. it out. It's like it's just so so genius. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. I mean, the the uh, kind of always, if you love that kind of thing, there's always you always hope there's like you're gonna. It's like being an archaeologist or something. You're going to a treasure hunter, right? You're going to like you're going to uncover. There's going to be another one out there, right? Yep. Another surprisingly glorious bridge that you can come across, and it'll be that same magic, but brand new again. Mm-hmm. And you know, despite the fact that humans have been at it for quite a long time, there seems to be an inexhaustible supply of like cool new things to do with notes. You know, within right. every 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 genre. Although I have to say, sadly, like. I think about the blues generally as a category of music, and it really does seem to have just exhausted itself. Mm. Um, you know, maybe that's you know that's blasphemous to say, but um, it, it just sort of seemed to have petered out. Like whatever the the effects were on you know certain pioneers' guitars when it was electrified, it, it's, it's all sort of been done seemingly, and, and no one seems to be doing it other than in a nostalgic kind of like touristy yeah i think just people it to me it's right there's this kind of standard vocabulary and even people who are masterful at that like that's impressive and it's great and it sounds good but it's not 
compelling in the way that it is when someone puts it together with a little extra magic because they're combining it in a different way or they just have a different voice on the instrument mm -hmm. something you know so I, you know there's a lot of I'm kind of just anti-listening to blues music. I, I get it, and I, I I think it to me it's a little bit more player's music than listener's music. Right. Um, but there are some people, there's a few people who I could really just, you know, I felt this way about like Stevie Ray Vaughan, and I think that Derek Trucks on guitar mm -hmm. has like a magic, he's got something to say, and yep. he's got a voice on the instrument, and it... Um, He's able to infuse it with a thing that makes it compelling, whereas anybody else playing over the same, or most other people playing over the same change is just not, even if it's super skillful and yep. well executed, Impressive. it's just not, yeah. it's not compelling yep. in the same way. It's a hard thing to, I think, you're, I think it's an interesting point. I think within some of those genres where it's been mined so heavily. Well, the playbook, like the the playbook of guitar licks within the blues genre, yeah, it's just been so deeply, thoroughly mined yeah. that whatever like contribution it's going to make into other music forms, seemingly it's kind of been made. And if if we're not going to come up with new amazing blues licks, you know, then the, the like the wellspring has kind of run dry, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, bluegrass too. It's interesting. Like I. I um, originally, I was like I, I liked only the classic bluegrass song structures and instrumentation, and because it was it was new to me, and um, and and I thought new grass was sort of corny and cheesy, uh, and now I've kind of come around the other way where, you know, you can only hear like a fast, clean banjo player play a flat and scrug song so many times like mm -hmm. i'm impressed that's really yes. cool i can't do that or do it as well but you know I, I i get it like i've heard it already and now it's the new grass stuff those, these pioneers and you know whether it's uh you know um punch brothers or um uh that sarah Jarose group um I'm with her, which is maybe the worst band name I've ever heard, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they're, but the, it's lovely, and it's different and creative, and and maybe you know there's a little bit of like a new agey lightness to it that I that isn't my the style that I prefer. But they're like carving new ground; they're creating a yeah. different type of music altogether. So I'm into that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that thing of right, super well executed stuff is impressive as craft. It's not always the thing I want, though. It's not always the thing that's gonna. I'll move take it for three or songs or five, but I don't want to go to a concert of an hour and twenty minutes and hear that exhibition of a craft. Yeah, I think the thing to me is like it doesn't. It that's not what brings me back. Like that's not going to bring me back over and over to keep listening and stuff. There has to be some other kind of like deeper magic in it besides mm -hmm. just flawless execution. Right. To to really pull me in this doesn't mean it has to have like imperfections or something like it's bad that it's well executed but that alone isn't enough there right. has to be something else yeah there has to be something else in yep. there um what was the last do you go see live music very often i wouldn't say very often i you know uh five seven times a year if we're lucky i'd say yeah 
um, we uh, so that band um, I'm with her. We did look Chris Lozier, another guest of this podcast. Yeah. He and I went to that, uh, which was amazing. And we I used to we used to go to a bluegrass festival or two once a year. Which, whether or not the music at the moment is incredible, you're just like sitting in the sun, generally in the mountains, you know, chemicals coursing through your system and just feeling it, feeling great. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's always a good time. Yeah. Well, there's all those aspects of of a live music thing, right? Yeah. And being with other people who are also into it, the communal aspect. Yeah. There's all those. Especially if it's if it's like a trip, you know, it's like sure. You know, you, if you get bored of the music, you go on a hike or you go play golf or do something. You know, you just it, it, if it's a whole trip built around it, I what's not to like about that? Yeah, right. Then then you're probably going to like it. Yeah, yeah, awesome, dude. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you for coming and being on What Else. Thanks Brian, for having Brian. me. It's a pleasure. It. Yeah, man. We'll do it again for sure. <laughs>